Restart radio show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we're not going to focus on all those new shiny, shiny things for you to buy. Instead, we focus on the value and the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift in behavior towards a more sustainable and a happier relationship with electronics. And our monthly community electronics repair events here in London, called Restart Parties, are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter, and I'm joined by Ugo Valauri, and we're co-founders of the Restart Project. Hello. And today we're joined by a special guest, product designer Paul Sohi who is an expert in 3D printing and digital fabrication, who's working at a company called Autodesk. Um, he's going to help us delve into the possibilities of 3D printing and DIY repair. And we've known Paul for years. Uh, we've been neighbors at our workspace uh, in Somerset House called Makerversity, and it's really great to have him on the show. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I remember... I was thinking back when we first met you, I don't think I had a notion really of what 3D printing was myself. And I remember seeing you working on a piece, I believe it was like a, a replica of something from an action film, which I clearly had never seen, like a superhero film. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what piece that might have been? <laughs> I think it was probably a batarang at the time, yeah. Yeah, So, and you showed me all the stills from the film that I hadn't seen, and basically how you were able to create a model of, of you know, the, a 3D model on your computer of something that you'd never actually seen yourself in real life. And I, I was really impressed with, you know, that idea that you could just basically take a thing, model it, and make it um, using a computer and make such a precise version of it. Can you tell just the audience, like, who people who may never have been exposed to 3D printing and digital fabrication, what it is and how it's come about. Sure. So 3D printing is what's called an additive manufacturing technology. And basically what that means is uh, traditional ways of making stuff starts with a block of material and you cut away from that to get the shape that you want. So most of the stuff in your house is built this way. Additive manufacturing, by comparison, is using uh, it's starting with a volume with nothing in it, and it builds stuff up layer by layer. So the technology is probably about 30 years old at this point. The first uh, SLA printer was made in 1983, and the technology works by basically solidifying either using like a vat of liquid um, and solidifying it with a laser, or the more common process would be... Um, the stuff you see every day, like a desktop 3D printer, that's with a spool of plastic, and that's taking an object and building it layer by layer. So if you sliced something that you can see in the real world like a thousand times and stack those back on top of each other, that's how 3D printing works. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was actually, it's weird, because it, in a sense, it, rem it reminded me immediately of, of like of an inkjet printer. I just, I, it's almost like you have to transform the notion of inkjet printing in 2D into 3D. It's, I guess that, that was my layperson's analogy is like something coming through a, a nozzle. It's just that instead of it being on a flat surface, it's being, um, it's, it's being built, as you say, in layers in 3D. Um, and, uh, you know, tell us how you got into that. I mean, it's really, cause I, you know, when you, when we met you, you were, you were basically doing commissions, doing these pieces, getting, uh, you know, highly paid to create these pieces. And I, I guess it struck me as, wow, I just didn't even know that this was a thing that existed, a way that you could make money that, you know, how did, how did you get into it? So, um, my background's in architecture. That's what I studied at university and, um, the university that I went to put a lot of 
focus on future technologies and looking at buildings that aren't really possible right now. So at the time, we were coming up with geometries and shapes for structures that weren't things that were easy to build by hand. So the... Uh, the result for us was that when it comes to model making, we couldn't really use you know paper and card the way that normally you would build a model of a building. So we started using 3D printing, and that's kind of how I got into it, was finding a way of realizing what I built on screen into the real world. So from there, um, I kind of became disillusioned with architecture and decided that wasn't what I wanted to do as a career and um, started a company and found this niche with cosplayers, comic book fans, um, film fans who wanted replicas of stuff in the films. And it was very easy to take those kind of 3D skills that I had and build a market for it. And I guess a lot of it was learning about ergonomics from architecture. So you know how tall a person is, you kind of know approximately what their hand size is. So while I haven't got access to the actual thing that I'm trying to build, I can kind of guess what what the size of it is based on them gripping it. And that's how I got into it. And so 3D, became, 3D printing became a really kind of accessible technology to make these absolutely crazy things as, you know, prop replicas. That's really interesting because I, I, I imagine that maybe a lot of people might, might have thought that you would study engineering or that you had some, you know, like really hardcore engineering background, but um, you come at it from a, different, from a different background. And I think probably a lot of the, your peers, people that work in, the, in that industry also don't necessarily have a classical uh, engineering background. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, it's. I'd say it's a fair mix. Um, okay. One of the kind of um, empowering things about three D printing as a technology is that um, a lot of the craft in in like hand building, skilled hands, is not all that necessary as long as you know how to do basic three D modeling, build a kind of a solid um, object in three D, then you can transfer that out into the real world. Yeah, that's really. I mean, it it is, seems like it's a, a whole new way of, I guess, of of making and uh, and where you know that it, that as you say, the barriers to entry may be lower for certain kinds of people. Um, that's really exciting. Um, well, tell us um, about um, some projects that you've been involved with uh, through through Autodesk that that may that will get us started, get 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 listeners kind of thinking about what three D printing can do. Um, one of the more exciting ones that what just happened in the Paralympics. Um, you were working with a Paralympian, is that right? Yes. So for the last uh, eighteen months, I've been working with a Paralympic cyclist. Her name is Denise Schindler, and she is the first person in the world now to race at the Olympic Games with a 3D printed prosthetic. So that project for us was about looking at um, prosthetics and the creation of prosthetics as a technology, which is primarily analog, and seeing if it was possible to digitize that process as a way of being able to build that stuff faster. So the result, um, the result for us was essentially looking at that analog process and translating those things into um, into digital processes. So when you build a prosthetic, the first thing that you do is take a plaster cast mold of the person's leg. So for us, that became 3D scanning, which is a really great way of producing that. Primarily because um, there's there's um, less kind of room for error. Like the way that a digital scanner will take that information is going to be far better than you trying to measure it by hand. You know, ultimately you might log something incorrectly. And then from there, it was using 3D modeling and sort of stress analysis and doing um, kind of digital engineering on an object. And then from that, the kind of natural progression was to go to 3D printing to produce it. Part of the reason we chose 3D printing was that it allowed us to um, 
produce something more intelligent than what you could do by hand. So one of the great things about the technology is that it allows you to produce geometries and shapes that are either very difficult to produce in other processes or near impossible. So with Denise, um, we're able to produce something that's actually lighter and as strong as the carbon fiber one, which is how a normal prosthetic would be built. With the um, added benefit of being able to use the um, digital technologies to do sort of intelligent things with the skin. So um, one of the kind of difficulties of wearing a prosthetic is that it's always going to kind of be uncomfortable. Mm, Um, But because we can analyze her leg and see where those stress points are, we can account for that in the 3D printing and allow the natural kind of material properties to help create flex and basically comfort. And one of the things about 3D printing, from again, from my lay perspective, it seems that it's 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 really appropriate for rapid prototyping. So for mm-hmm. for trying something out, the the cost of kind of of iterating and trying something out and experimenting is a little bit lower than with some of these other. Would you say some of the traditional ways of, of making? Is that? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's two sides of it. The material cost is considerably lower because you're only using exactly what you need. There's not really much waste at all. And I guess the other benefit would be um, that it, because it's faster, there's less kind of cost to you as someone to produce it. What was kind of interesting with Denise, though, was we I think we produced in total 55 uh, iterations of this thing, but only had to produce three physical prototypes, oh, okay. um, which is still far less than the kind of analog process of doing the same thing. Yeah. So, so does that mean that... Uh, only at three points you actually 3D printed the whole thing so that she could try it on? Yeah. Um, and the only real reason we were doing that is, um, well, I'm, I'm not a prosthetic engineer. I'm not a prosthetician. So we needed to test uh, in the real world um, what I built to see if it would work and just sort of kind of prove the theory in a way. So, you know, seeing everything on the screen is absolutely great. And there's a lot of kind of uh, comfort and a safety barrier there. But Ultimately, you always want to check whether what you're doing works for real. Sure, yeah. And before we move on to more mundane things, because we are definitely going to get to those household <laughs> items that we all would like to fix, um, you also do, you've done some work in preservation. So looking at creating replicas of, um, of pieces of art or artifacts of historic importance and even in some way mending or repairing them. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. um, One of the kind of exciting things about 3D printing is that um, the digitization process that goes with it. So the stuff that happens in the background, I mean, ultimately, 3D printing is a manufacturing technology. So it's an ends to a mean. And um, um, I've been working with the Victorian Albert Museum and then Autodesk as 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 an entity has been working with the Smithsonian. And it's been what we've been able to do is use 3D scanning as a way of kind of creating digital archives. And by doing that, we're kind of ensuring that the artifact, you know, almost becomes immortal. Um, One of the other benefits of that is that um, there's an example of of a Baroque armchair, which has this really kind of intricate woodworking on it. And the arm broke on one side. And we were able to use 3D scanning to scan the side of it that was okay, and then mirror that over to the other side and sort of fix it in in such a way that we could see what it should look like and the conservators were able to use this as like a physical thing to have in their hands and and use that you know repeat 
building that a bunch of times in the process of you know rebuilding and fixing the thing i'm sure like traditional um people who work in restoration would probably argue that, that they have this hand skills to do it and i'm sure there's a big argument about that but one thing that's really exciting about the preservation work is that museums can actually uh, upload uh can share the designs with the public and so i saw some of that work that they're doing in the smithsonian to kind of share designs and the public can almost interact in a 3d way with artifacts so uh, all the arguments aside about i don't know traditional versus digital techniques it's pretty cool that people can interact with the objects online i think that there's like a public education aspect of it it's really exciting absolutely and i think for a museum this is a, a perfect way to be able to share that knowledge with the world which is kind of what i guess a museum is trying to do yeah that's great shall we move on to more mundane things ugo yeah i was all excited about whether the 3d scanned artifacts actually become the ones that are shown to the public and the real thing is then kept in the <laughs> archives or whether it's the other way around about uh, i don't think i can comment on that <laughs> i see i see very interesting well so one of the reasons that we got interested in 3d printing is because everyone um keep telling us well you know the maker movement is working so much on 3d printing it's a natural thing to do when you need to repair a broken small appliance to 3D print the part that broke. And so we wanted to do a bit of a reality check because there's been a lot of talking about this, a few good examples, but nothing really at scale. So I wanted to learn from your experience, where do you see this today? So I think right now, um, I would agree with you that there's been a lot of talk and I would say that it is still more a theory than it is practice. And um, that's primarily because um, the skills needed to produce those um, broken parts, that's the part that's missing. So the 3D printer is, you know, it's still a machine. It still requires input. And that's the human element. And um, if that information isn't available, the person trying to produce the thing doesn't know how to do it, then it doesn't get done, right? And you end up having to buy um, the spare part instead. And just for our listeners, normally the kind of materials that uh, you can 3D print with, uh, with normal filament, are plastics and, at this stage? Mm, that's about it. <laughs> right. So it's fair to say that if you were to 3D print a special board uh, to replace an electronic component, at this point you can't do that. No, you wouldn't be able to 3D print that. There is a lot of research being done into that, but nothing that's kind of readily available so right now. Some of the examples that we've run across and things that we would like to experiment with are um, broken cogs in blenders, um, maybe even spindles, but, you know, plastic parts, even even pinch, pinch rollers and printers. I remember somebody suggesting if only we could somehow create or, or get this one little plastic part in the printer that's broken off. But as Paul was saying, I think the thing that seems to be missing in most cases is um, someone who's skilled enough and quick enough to, to in our case mm. to capture someone's uh, attention work with them and provide a fix and um, we're going to go into some of the details after the break so 
So you're listening to Restart Radio on 104.4 Resonance. Um, and we're talking with uh, 3D printing expert Paul Sohi about the promise of 3D printing to to uh, fix our broken household stuff. And we just got into uh, some of the cogs and bolts of the matter. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we were just talking about how uh, oftentimes there is a great promise to to like potentially scan or model a 3D part and produce it and fix something. But that Ugo and I have never actually really, really seen something like that happen, uh, at least in a community setting, we did in try, our events. We did try once in Woking, if I'm not wrong. Uh, it was a collaboration with the South London Makerspace. And that time, unfortunately, we failed. But probably the reason we failed was we didn't have a good 3D design of the part that we wanted to replace. Mm. And I guess that goes to one part of the problem, which is the availability of 3D designs for common parts that go mm. out of market or that might not even be provided by manufacturers at all. Yeah, so I mean, there is, um, there's a number of kind of complications in this. So part of it is that um, you you almost have to build a library by manufacturer because certain things are not standardized. Um, then, of course, the skill of the person producing the part is a factor. And, and it's not just about actually like replicating something that was existing there in the first place because that was manufactured in a different way. So another consideration with something like 3D printing is that the technology of 3D printing has its own kind of material properties. So um, from an engineering point of view, if you're slicing something in a certain direction, then it's strong in um, it's strong perpendicular to that. But if you're putting a force um, along the kind of the layer lines, then it's going to split and break. So if you're making moving parts, then obviously that's an issue. Then there's the um, the density. So kind of a common thing to do with 3D printing is that you don't make it solid. You use 25% the density of the actual object. And so that also weakens it. And then the actual process of manufacturing it too. So 3D printing, you know, it has its own tolerances and its own values. It doesn't have that kind of precision engineering like machining a part would have. Yeah, we see so many broken 3D printers or, or like, <laughs> or, you know, miscalibrated ones in different maker spaces. It's interesting. I was researching yeah. before the show, you know, 3D printer repair, but meaning spare parts creation and the more links I was looking for the more I was finding information about broken 3D printer repair <laughs> yeah. manual created by iFixit and etc etc I've seen you a number of times stressed out trying to fix a broken 3D printer it's a big deal yeah and um, I mean part of that is also because we're using you know the availability to the average person is a desktop 3D printer and they're not designed to be used this way they're great machines don't get me wrong but they're not industrial machines. They're not meant to be running around the clock, but they end up in maker spaces where they are being run around the clock. And so they break down as much as the stuff that you're trying to make spare parts for. I guess the benefit, though, is that if you think ahead, you can 3D, part, 3D print parts for your 3D printer in case something does go wrong. And that's pretty commonplace. So um, let's. I was thinking, you know, there's so much promise. We haven't really seen it yet, but I would think it would be fun just to ha imagine with you. Um, what would it? What do we need to actually kind of to make decentralized manufacture of spare parts a reality? And and I'm talking about you know the kinds of spare parts that are within our reach. So you know, starting with plastics. But you know, what is it? so in terms? Of you're saying human skills are quite are quite important. The mm. skills you said about knowing about material science and kind of um, engineering and then just maintaining machines. And um, But what else do we need to make it a reality? 
So I think part of it is definitely um, if we as consumers can have more of a dialogue with manufacturers so that um, standardization of components or at least products that then become discontinued are to some degree open sourced or the source files or the even just the basic dimensions are available so that we can replicate them. Um, and then, you know, as a as a consumer group or even if you want to go as far as saying as a society we need to have a bigger dialogue about what our relationship is with our products i mean homeware is a great example for repairability because most of that stuff that you buy is going to be sticking around for a few years right but it'll get discontinued after a few years of production so if you bought something two years ago and they're not making it anymore how do you repair it you're kind of obliged to buy something new that shouldn't be the case so if we can have a library where these things are produced or just even just a two-dimensional drawing saying that these are the dimensions of the thing that you need, then you can go and work with someone to get that replicated. That would be the first step, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we're always, um, you know, championing the that manufacturers should be sharing more repair, documentation for repair, so disassembly and, and common repairs. But with that, why couldn't they also, you know, especially once, as you say, the devices are no longer supported, couldn't they offer up designs for commonly failing spare parts? Um, Could we imagine a different model where they actually get involved in this? And so imagine a support store from company X in the future where you go there and they access themselves this library of parts. And that reduces also their needs for centralized storage of spare parts. Mm. Is that something that you see potentially happening? I think so. And I think there's a trend moving in that direction. Um, there are companies out there trying it out, um, but it's it's very silent. Um, they don't really talk about it a lot. And I guess it's partly because not enough people would care, right? It's just as long as it's benefiting me as a consumer, then great. I don't really need to know about it, I guess, is sort of the mentality. It's also interesting that for a lot of manufacturers that we've been able to talk to um, the business of providing spare parts directly is something that they're very scared by like beyond the products that are covered by warranty they almost don't want to deal with it and at times they offload that to a third party so in a sense they're very concerned with just selling more and designing new products and not so much with what happens to their products beyond their warranty period. But And we mm. meet so many people who are frustrated, I mean, who are frustrated by this, who um, they don't really feel like they have enough options in terms of, you know, a good example is maybe the f like food blenders. I mean, to, to get a high, you know, a high spec, a really high quality food blender that's going to last you 10 or 15 years, we talked to a chef on the show about this, um, you're going to have to invest quite mm. a lot and a lot more than some people are willing to do. And so it does really raise a question is like, should everybody else just be forced just to buy stuff every two or three years? I mean, there are some people who would put in the time and the work to actually get things repaired if they could, I think. Mm. Um, I think it's it's one of those kind of, it's, uh, it's going to be a very long debate about durability versus repairability. Um, but it's also, it's kind of unfair to assume that just because you purchased it in the house and yours is not, you know, the top end brand for kind of commercial use like a chef would have, that your product is only expected to last for a few years. Um, uh, homeware in the blender is, is just one of those great examples of it has a lot of moving parts and therefore there's going to be mechanical wear. But 
Why is it that when that happens, I have to purchase a new one? Why is there not a dialogue happening there? Especially if you think about like what's so unnerving about it. It's a bit like the bad capacitors on televisions. These plastic parts, I mean, how much is the actual cost to manufacture them in the first place? It's more the costs, as Ugo was mentioning, to um, to provide them, to provide the service behind it. To, but, you know, that part in and of itself, is, I mean, it's worth virtually nothing mm. in some way. Um, so that's what I think is particularly frustrating about um, um, and about these household appliances and the way they fail. But also, for me anyway, it does signal that there's some promise to, for some kind of decentralized uh, system for, for spare parts. And um, I, think, I think it's a real area of, of, um, of growth. I mean, we've been ta- we talked uh, last week about uh, Europe and the role of, of the European Commission in, in eco-labeling. And um, I hope that there are some people in Brussels that are at least investigating this and, you know, looking at um, uh, making this at least a, a best practice that a manufacturer could adopt. Also, because right now there's so much interest in all the portable smartphones, tablets, computers mm-hmm. that it's stuff that tends to evolve faster anyway, even when plateauing as it is now, than all the kitchen appliances mm. but for those devices at times you just don't have uh, any option nor any commercial obvious choice if you need a repair so mm. it's actually more urgent in a sense than figuring out the laptop and smartphone economy absolutely i think uh the home and the homeware and you know if you want to call them non-complex um electronics that's where um this can really be championed because of exactly what you're talking about i think the the recycle rate in more complicated electronics, your laptops, tablets, phones, etc. That's a whole different problem. And I think that that really comes down to the architecture of how those things are made. But um, by comparison, these other products are so simple that it's almost nonsensical that we don't have something in place where having a decentralized system would work. And, you know, um, I think a makerspace in in, in any capacity is a proof of concept that this could work because we have these spots all over the city and all over the country, across the world, um, the accessibility to a decentralized fabrication system is in place. It's just a matter of how we decide to use it in this kind of scenario. Yeah, I mean, we agree with you, but Ugo and I have always been kind of, we're looking for signs or like flashes of interest from makerspaces in terms of fixing. And we, we sometimes do our restart party events in makerspaces, but we um, it's kind of rare that you see, or I can't even really think of one makerspace that almost like, jumps out in terms of the makers that I've met that frequent that, that are super interested in repair and, um, and 3D, 3D printing and of, of spare parts. And the stories that, Ugo, that we've heard of, they're kind of, you know, they're kind of interesting one-offs, really charming stories that people tell of how they spent four weeks on this project and triumphed, but it feels very still thin. It's, it's anecdotal as opposed mm-hmm. to systemic, for sure. Mm-hmm. But also we see a lot, Maybe not so much of a priority for uh, the makers that we 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 work with uh, mm. alongside with for concepts of repairability and modularity for the sake of getting things to to last longer. And I guess that I mean that's certainly a much bigger issue than the execution. But um, I would argue that there is definitely a shift coming, and that um, a w- public awareness over across the board in in you know responsibility and ethics behind consumer goods is is increasing and so people expect their products to last last longer and that's that's a trend that's definitely happening in even when we look at like larger scale electronics like the 
release date sales spikes are are starting to plateau and so to some degree you could argue that that's a reflection in this kind of responsibility and and how people look at the stuff that they're purchasing um but I, w- I would say that there's something very interesting around the idea of developing archives of this information and that um, it's certainly not impossible, but definitely a large task to do. And I think that would certainly help things move forward. Absolutely. We'll have to invite you back to talk about that. Um, you've been listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. Ugo, can you tell us really quickly about all the upcoming events where you can get help with your frustrating gadgets? Yes, the big one is this Saturday in Hackney. The Hackney Fixers are hosting the Big Fix at the gallery at Stock Newington Library between 12 and 4 p.m. And it will be an event where not just electronics, but also cycle repair, clothing and furniture repair is happening. So very exciting event. And uh, for for something different, we are hosting a talk as part of the London Design Biennale next week on Tuesday at 6 p.m. Talk uh, titled, Sorry, We Haven't Reached Peak Stuff. Well, good luck to all of us about that. And uh, You can find out more on our website, uh, therestartproject.org, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. And uh, next week, we'll, we'll be back with a podcast about updates, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, thanks to Opto Noise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers and repurposed electronics. See you next week. Bye.